0: That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G. are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union.
1: Hello Tom, hello everyone, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Tom, we're joined by a very special guest today. Uh, we are. I, was, I was having a conversation with an Oxford academic, who's very much a friend of the Free Speech Union, a few months ago. And we were talking about the weekly newsletter which uh, I imagine all of our listeners will be subscribers to. Um, and uh, he was saying how much he enjoyed it and how funny it was, how well-written it was. And he said, but Freddie Attenborough is not a real person, is he? That's a that's a sort of collective pen name that the FSU has put together. <laughs> and I was protesting over <laughs> many drinks of red wine and champagne and on by this point that, that no, he is a real person and I see him every week, or at least I, I'm sure I do. I think I do. I'd had a few drinks by this point. Anyway, here is proof positive that Freddie Attenborough exists, is a real person, is the real author of the FSU's weekly newsletter, which is superb. Um, because Do you want me to pretend to be him now, No, ben, No, so can, no, uh, <laughs> we, we, even better, we've got, we've got a highly convincing AI to join us, Freddie
2: Attenborough. <laughs> yes, I am the avatar. The um, Hi, Ben, that's a lovely introduction.
0: <laughs> Welcome Thank to you.
1: the podcast.
0: I exist. <laughs> you... You do exist. And okay. your first name's almost an anagram of freedom as well, Freddie. So Indeed. I can see why, why Toby would pick Freddie as a name. You know, it kind of works on every level, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> what a distinction. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Freddie. So, so Freddie, um, you, in addition to doing all of our newsletters, all of our social media, keeping on top of the gigantic quantities of free speech news that, that are going on in Britain, the European Union and indeed around the world. Um, how do you do it? I mean, there's so much going on, isn't there? Every week.
2: How do I do it? Um, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, this is a terribly. This is one of these words that is overused. But I think it's passion. Actually, I think it's enthusiasm for for the task. I think they're really important issues. Um, and you know, you mentioned sort of Europe as well. I think a lot of the things that happen in Europe, um, EU regulation ends up here as well. And there seems to be a pattern of the kind of legislation that comes in in North America and Europe ends up here, or it, or what we do ends up there. So, I, and 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 they're hugely important things that, in some ways, they are um, invisible in in everyday life, but they affect everyday life in massive massive ways. So, um, yeah, personal personal enthusiasm for the job, I guess.
1: I don't know about you, Tom, but I'd, I'd stopped paying attention, really, to the the, the internal uh, machinations and internal politics of the European Union and the European Parliament and so on. And uh, cause it, it used to give me toothache reading about it, basically. And then we Brexited and I thought, OK, well, I don't have to worry about that ever again. That's fine. Which, in hindsight, I, I think was was very naive. Um, and I was reading, actually, one of your articles that you, read, cause you also write for The Critic, um, And I was reading one of your articles about the Digital Services Act Mm. um, a little while ago, because I I was going to go and give a talk about about some of these things to a group of former Vote Leave um, campaign volunteers. Um, But we really can't turn our brains off to what's going on in Europe, I think. You're right. I mean, as you've said, what goes on there? Um, tends to percolate through into Britain, and there is it's this kind of arms race with digital regulation and um, yeah. hate crime law and so on that, that spreads all over the place.
2: I mean, just, just on that note, um, Melanie Dawes, the the head of Ofcom. I mean, her, as far as I'm aware, her only public messaging so far on the Online Safety Act has been that there's a desperate need for us to align with the Digital Services Act. Uh, when, when we implement yeah. it fully, and there's a there's a desperate need for the codes of practice that they're writing to align with the Digital Services Act, which 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 you know the Digital Services Act is a uh, the, the, the the sort of surveillance and censorship powers contained within that legislation are incredible, and and here we have the head of Ofcom saying that this is what we after all the debates we've had over the last two or three years about the Online Safety Bill, this is this is her first public pronouncement, is that the the key now is to is to keep in alignment. With the European legislation on that same topic, so it's um, you know the, the the nation state nation state legislation is often echoes and is influenced heavily by you know
0: other international bodies and other national nation states. Well, there is a huge voice from big business, isn't there, Freddie? I mean, if 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 you are running a business, if you are a director of a large business like twitter not even in the social media space you want to have regulations that are as simple as possible Hmm. one version okay We'll if we're operating in the u.s we'll adapt to the u.s and if we're operating in europe we'll adapt to europe but really do we need to adapt to a totally different set of rules in the uk is probably the messaging that most businesses are saying and saying alignment just makes our lives a lot simpler to your point it completely overrides uh all of the democratic well i i when you said the last two years you're talking about the online safety bill i'm thinking about the whole brexit eight years that we've had now of fraught debate we've gone through all this pain and yet there's probably these voices in the background that are saying let's 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 go back let's align you're right alignment seems to be the word but we'll come back freddie and talk further about you and about how you got involved in the FSU, all that good stuff, mm-hmm. uh, I thought, given how engaged you are in on a day-to-day basis with all of the issues that are, that are crossing our free speech desk, we should launch straight into our first item, which is um, the dark day for democracy. There was a, I can't remember whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday last week when everything went crazy in the House of Commons. But in essence, everything descended into chaos, Uh, because the Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, broke with Parliamentary Convention by allowing the Labour MPs to vote for an amendment to an SNP motion calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And all of our listeners will remember the scenes on our television sets last week uh, or on our iPads, depending (laughs) depending on the way you consume this stuff. And um, multiple very concerning free speech issues came out of that. Analysis... um, Afterwards, clearly raised some free speech issues. I mean, the one that really I think was at the heart of this is that uh, members of parliament and Charles Walker actually mm-hmm. spelt this out afterwards. He said that members of parliament now feel they have to vote in a certain way to safeguard their safety and the safety of their family. Uh, and and he said and he was. It's a really good clip. Uh, the clip of, of Charles Walker. He says this is a far bigger issue than the debate we're having tonight. Because if people are changing their votes in this place, the House of Commons, or changing their behaviours in this place because they're frightened what may happen to them or their families out there, then we have a real problem. I think we all can see that there is a huge problem. Um, And I think that there was no doubt that MPs were worried about the safety of their families. But uh, where does that leave us? Where does that leave our democracy? Where does that leave uh, rigorous free debate at the top of the country is the question on my lips anyway
1: this is basically the issue that got me interested in freedom of speech um uh, as an issue of something that that needed active defense um 10 15 years ago um so before i launch into it because i could filibuster for hours on this topic
2: um (laughs) freddie do you do you want to have your say first might be the best way of doing this um I mean, I, yes. I think Tom has sort of set out the the, the main issues there. I mean, I, th- I think one of the it, it didn't it wasn't immediately clear to me actually that it was the issue that it became in the sense that there were there, there were fears there about safety of MPs and they were concerned about the safety of well themselves and their their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and part of the reason it wasn't immediately clear to me is that i think a lot of in in the mainstream media there was there was there was a sort of a deflection away to suggesting this was all just a party political issue uh and it it was a you know bias because the speaker of the commons sir lindsay hoyle was a was a former labour mp and therefore he was trying to do a favor to his old party and, and that was the issue and it was actually only later um i think you know the interventions of as you say, Charles Walker um, was one of the MPs in in Parliament who actually floated this idea. I mean, but interestingly, Beth Rigby had actually hinted at this the night before. I think, or maybe maybe it was on the day that there was some there was some fears there, but it didn't it didn't really filter through um, into the media. And and I think sort of flowing from that for me is an issue that when when people who sort of what you might call progressives. Uh, the sort of guardian readers when they when they hear about issues like this they, they always have a you know in the same way with cancel culture they say well you know cancel culture doesn't exist it's just consequence culture for people who say appalling things you know, what's the problem and we've seen a little bit of that here in the sense that they're saying well you know haven't these protesters thousands of them got a right to protest outside parliament if they're outside a, a an mp's constituency protesting what's wrong with that it's just the rough and tumble of democracy so i think There are important issues here about actually how how do we define when when protest becomes intimidation, when when the the gathering of people becomes something more malevolent, because if you if you wanted to in the way that, you know, the sort of left progressives are now doing, you could say, well, there's no problem. So it's it's, it's a kind of a silent menace. And I think there has to be some kind of cross party, cross political consensus on on some things that just aren't acceptable because because everybody knows realistically deep down that intimidation and harassment can work in very subtle very silent but very insidious ways um, and unless we can kind of get people on all part all parts of the political p- spectrum to say no this this actually wasn't this hasn't this this doesn't have a place in parliamentary democracy then we, we as Charles, to quote Charles Walker, we've got a problem. We've got a real problem if people are now going to start saying, well, this is fine, thousands of people outside Tobias Elwood's house or whatever, you know, great, okay, they're just protesting, this is just democracy. That's a real problem if we don't put a, put a stop to that, I think.
0: It's, it's really well said, Freddie. I mean, the, 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 the little image in my head is of the child of an MP mm-hmm. you know, going to school in a, on a normal weekday probably I don't know six seven eight and turning round and saying dad or mum I don't want to go to school they're scaring me mm-hmm. and to me it's these little pictures of of where the line has been crossed but I agree with you um, the debate needs to happen and uh, we cannot crush lively debate in a democracy. Just um, you know, and go too far. So it's it's it, you put it really well. Sorry, Ben, I interrupted. No, you.
1: I, I, well, I was just going to say that, that there's one example of, of exactly what I think you're talking about, Freddie. That that was in the Telegraph on uh, Sunday Telegraph, Anna Firth MP, um, who wrote about a visit to a mosque in her constituency. Um, somebody she writes started shouting, jabbing her finger in my face, and demanding to know how many babies had to die to satisfy my bloodlust and then there were placards a few days later after this incident at a demonstration in Southend uh, with people holding placards saying, Anna Firth kills babies. Mm. Now, that seems to me a situation where it it could well be the case that somebody looking at uh, protests like that or seeing claims like that, and if those claims are repeated often enough, that that would would create conditions where somebody would become violent um, Mm. and... Would uh, you know? We've we've seen, of course, the, the murder of Sir David um, Amos a few a few years ago, um, and so I, I can see entirely what you're driving at—that this this grey area um, that exists between legitimate protest and incitement to violence is becoming harder and harder to navigate. Um, because i mean to, to take a, to take an example using similar language i mean in, in the vietnam war people people chanted hey 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 lbj how many kids did you kill today but that somehow feels qualitatively quite different um yeah. that that feels like um for reasons i can't fully articulate that just that just seems like a different um sort of expression a different sort of uh, interaction to somebody in your face jabbing a finger in your face saying that how many babies have to to satisfy your bloodlust that just seems like a different
2: type of uh, expression yeah. to me i mean part part of the problem with the well for me at least for the for the since october the 7th has been a lot of the messaging the the pro palestinian you know protests have been uh, the, the the sort of semiotics of it has been so complex multiple meanings carried by each message you know so from the river to the sea palestine will be free i mean think about that the the complexity of what people can say on a spectrum of what that means on the one hand you know peaceful on the other hand it's a call to jihad and in the recent case of the two um women who were convicted um i'm not sure was it public order offense i think it was a terrorism offense for the for the um the hang glider symbols on their backs at at a fairly early on protest yeah um, but, you know, you have people saying, oh, well, hang gliders in the Middle East are a symbol of peace and freedom, you know. And so, 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 so part, part of the problem with I think this it perhaps is unique in some ways that the, the Hamas-Palestine-Israel kind of conflict is that so much of the messaging and so many of the protests carry complex multiple meanings that sometimes people can slip back behind a much subtler, much softer meaning. So no, I, I, I didn't mean it in the way that you're intending that I meant it. I, what I actually meant was just a yeah. call for peace across the Middle East. So so it, it's the messaging here, which I think it, which is causing a lot of the problems in the, 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 the multiplicity of meanings there. And you can slide between one and the other.
1: Can I go on a bit of a rant now? I've, um, I, I, I've <laughs> go held for it, myself then. off as
2: long as I can. You've been, you've been holding back. My, my <laughs> chief frustration,
1: I think, with this whole set of issues um, is the way in which um, there is some kind of Islamist atrocity or um, incident, as we saw in Parliament last week, there's some kind of inciting incident that suddenly makes the political class and the media um, have to acknowledge that there is a problem here, that there are people in Britain who would who seek to dramatically curtail freedom for everybody, freedom of and from religion, freedom of speech, etc. cetera. Um, and these things happen. And then within a couple of days, if that, the national debate, the national conversation is sublimated into some completely unrelated topic. And so, for instance, after the murder of Sir David by a jihadist, mm. uh, MPs then spend time discussing ban on online anonymity, a so-called David's law, which is completely unconnected from the actual inciting incident from the the murder Um, and in in this case we've had uh, the Labour Party saying I think probably completely uh, accurately that uh, MPs are facing horrendous uh, threats and death threats we know that there are MPs who are now having um, enhanced security and so on so we've gone from that position last week to the position now where the debate is entirely about what an individual Conservative MP has said and the appropriateness of that, and a debate about Islamophobia and how widespread it is. And so in the shortest decent interval, politicians move the debate on from the scale of the Islamist threat onto literally any other target of opportunity, as it were, any topic that they can, they can sublimate this fear into. That's my rant.
2: No, I completely, completely agree. I mean, just just as well, just thinking about what you've just said, I mean, who, who now, do, do you ever see in the mainstream media any references to October the 7th anymore? I mean, it, it's become about the Israeli invasion. It's become about the, the sort of, you know, almost occupation of Gar- the Gaza Strip. But there's never any reference anymore to the causal factor in all of this. That, that, that's, that's been airbrushed. Um, and that may be an unpalatable thing to hear. But it's, it's, it's my view. I read the news all the time. You, you, if you didn't know, if you were dropped into the world right now and you, you, you hadn't been around in October, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what this conflict was about. You wouldn't know what the causal factor was. Um, so it's airbrushed.
0: It's, it was noticeable as well on the 19th. It was the 19th anniversary of 7 2005 that there was barely any coverage on the mainstream media of the London yeah. tube bombings and those atrocities. When I still go past Stockwell tube station um, and the mural of the poor innocent man who was obviously shot by the police no. in the aftermath of that it was a it, in every way it was a, a terrible it's a terrible scar on London's history and it needs to be talked about it's it's sufficiently recent history it's not like the Blitz you can't you can't well, we can't look at look at it in the in the um, in the rear view mirror yet uh, it's it's very recent and people are still walking around with the scars yeah. of that atrocity and we need to carry on talking about it. But because it involves terrorists, Islamic terrorists blowing people up on the tube, we don't talk about it. So there seems in every way which turn we, we which way we look, Islamist terrorism is best avoided for a multiplicity of reasons, it seems.
2: Yeah.
1: Can we um, can we move on ever so slightly um, to talk about a tweet from Annalise Dodds, the Labour MP? Um, and she said on Sunday, I'll read the tweet, uh, Why are senior Conservatives finding it so hard to call out Islamophobia? Perhaps because the Conservatives still refuse to adopt the definition used by every other major political party in Britain to tackle the scourge of Islamophobia. We must name it. Uh, Now, we should say that the definition she's referring to is the all-party parliamentary group's definition of Islamophobia, um, which is extraordinarily expansive in how it defines this term. And so um, we and a number of other campaign organisations, like the National Secular Society and so on, have been opposing the adoption of this definition because it goes far beyond protecting Muslims from anti-Muslim hatred or bigotry, um, and it, it would inevitably curtail freedom of speech, discussion about Islam, discussion about Islamism. I mean, to pick one example, the definition says that um, it, it would include as part of is, Islamophobia, the, this this term that I, I think ought not to be used at all, claims of Muslims spreading Islam by the sword. Now, as a something of, a, of an amateur historian of, of the period of late antiquity, it seems to me that if that definition were to be adopted into law, um, classicists, people studying late antiquity, historians of the early medieval period, whatever you want to call it, the Dark Ages, um, could find themselves in a lot of trouble if they start talking about early Islamic history or um the aftermath of the great war between the roman empire and the persians this creates the conditions in which islam spreads from arabia um, and conquers much of uh, of the southern mediterranean so it doesn't seem to me, I mean, correct me if you think this is, this is overblown, it doesn't seem to me ludicrous to suggest that these that Dodd's pushing this definition, Labour have adopted this definition it's quite likely that it will be translated into law by a Labour government it doesn't seem improbable then that people who own books like Peter Brown's uh, work on late antiquity or Tom Holland's a book In the Shadow of the Sword could find the police knocking on their doors and saying that's a hate text it, it contains claims of Muslims
0: spreading Islam by the sword didn't Kemi come back on that, Ben? Didn't did, did Kemi Bad not come back on that on Twitter yes, she and did. say that we talk about anti-Muslim hatred as opposed to criticism of Islam because this is exactly the problem that it leads to. That definition leads to the problem you've just made, which is we can't be historians anymore. Yeah. Uh, and also it leads to the point that really concerns me, which is that of blasphemy, that there are things in... I could talk about Christianity till the, till the cows come home, and I could say, well, I don't believe that Jesus turned water into wine. Perhaps, maybe maybe I do. Uh, or I think that the prophet Elijah going to Judaism, Judeo-Christianity, I could say I don't believe the prophet Elijah disappeared up into heaven in a winged... well, Was it a winged chariot or a chariot dragged by horses? There are multiple... Uh, Things all across, or the Red Sea parting, all of these I says, I don't believe in them, or I think that was wrong, or I think that, you know, Samson was a violent man in the way that he, um, he, he, he destroyed the Philistines. But if I turn that conversation to elements of the Prophet Muhammad and elements of the Islamic religion, suddenly I'm Islamophobic. And that is blasphemy. That is absolutely blasphemy. And not even the back door, it's the front door now. Uh, if that definition comes in so that for me is 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 another element of this which i think you've already you've already made sufficient allusion to Ben but i don't know what do you think Freddie? i was going to th- i mean do do you think there's um
2: with legislation and, and definitional terms and so on i mean w- when you when you start getting into the weeds of kind of the cultural and the political instead of, instead of instead of setting up a space in which people can interact in certain ways a very kind of you know old school kind of way of thinking about legislation as creating the environment in which people can do things. Once you start getting into sort of really definitional work that involves complex political and cultural issues, I'm just wondering really where that leaves us because it seems, you know, these are issues that scholars and policy makers and so on could debate and indeed have debated for centuries um, and haven't got anywhere. But suddenly we have legislators and, and, and local councils who are saying no, no? no th- th- we this, we are defining it now. We're defining this very specific problem. We're not we're not setting up parameters of action. We're saying this is what you can or cannot say. Um, uh, but 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 do they understand the issues that are involved? I mean, one of the things I'm thinking of here, and it's an issue we see time and again at the Free Speech Union. And it's a little bit technical, but the Granger test, with when you're determining wh- whether a belief is worthy of respect in the democratic society and therefore a protected belief under the equality act we're now in the situation where we have employment tribunal judges that are making very deep-seated philosophical judgments about things that maybe maybe academics and scholars would never be able to determine whether you know what is, what is this belief what is this theory so it's 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 part for me it's part, I mean, part of a wider issue of I think there's a real problem with definitional work when it comes to these cultural
0: and political issues. I heard Ken Clark in the House of Lords and the, one of the readings of the Rwanda Bill make a very similar point. And the reason he wanted to reject that particular version of the Rwanda Bill was because it was specifically writing into the law Rwanda is a safe country instead of setting out the principles upon which you would then in enact immigration specifics yeah. he said oh what i don't like about this fact is that a very specific country which could go horribly wrong tomorrow mm. there could be a new war breakout, whatever it no longer clearly would be a safe country uh, how can you do that so specifically so it's not to talk specifically about you know whether a is the policy or whatever but i felt that ken clark was making a very good point and he's not my favorite politician yeah. But it, it sort of resonates very much with what you said there, Freddie, about getting right down to very specific definitions, rather than feeling the security of a set of principles yeah. under under which we can then actually operate uh, freely. But sorry, Ben, I interrupted you well, again. I was
1: just thinking if, if we do get to to a point where Labour do bring or any future government do bring in this APPG definition of Islamophobia, we could well have a situation where somebody could say. Because of my secular atheist or humanist beliefs, which are protected by the Equality Act, I have the right to criticise Islam in various ways. So, for instance, I could say that it's um, repressive towards women, it's repressive towards apostates, gay people, etc. But the law then would also put that person in a position where if they were um, recounting biographical details about Muhammad's life or about early Islamic leaders um, that they would fall foul of this definition of Islamophobia and that they would they would be caught in a position where you could express opinion about Islam if you were a secular atheist, but you could not express um, his certain historical facts about Islam. So we're going to end up with with even more of a nonsense than we already have. And um, w- one of the, the things about the Granger test as well is that because there's such scant protection for um, freedom of speech, freedom to hold political views for uh, I- employees, even outside of work, this is something we see day after day um, in our casework with people coming to contact us. Um, really, unless you can argue that the thing you've said is a manifestation of a belief, you're mm. really in hot water. Um, and, and the threshold for, for something being a belief rather than just an opinion, uh, as you just said, Freddie, is, is very high.
2: It's the, it's the return of sort of logical positivism. This this attempt to sort of determine what is sense and what is nonsense, and then you know, in some in some kind of computational way that you can you can actually just go, you can churn through the social world and say what's a protected belief and what's not a protected belief in some with some magical equation, but um, it, it, it just can't work. And I think that the, the further I mean, we go on and the more more claims that I have a protected belief, it's going to become more and more absurd. I think.
1: Yeah, and it, it completely upends. Um, our legal tradition, because you're in a position now where you can only express your beliefs if a judge, basically an employment tribunal panel, has said that your beliefs are worthy of respect in a democratic society. So you're right; we have we have this this completely unwieldy, uh, growing list of things you're allowed to believe, um, which is a, is is an utter nonsense. Um, but it's the only tool we have in in many of our cases, and so we
0: have to we have to rely upon it. Yeah the classicists were hundreds of years, thousands of years ahead of us when they came up with ideas such as the Gordian Knot, um, you know, ideas of problems that are in, insoluble. Yeah. And what do you need? You need, was it was it Alexander the Great who yeah. just came along and took a mighty great sword and just sliced through it? And the longer you leave it, the longer these problems, because we've been cowardly, we've left it for too long. I mean, I referenced earlier... and and the aftermath of that. And we can list so many instances of exactly the gaslighting you described earlier, Ben, where the conversation moves on very, very quickly to something that actually has nothing to do with the core problem. And we've done it again and again and again. We've got into a habit. And we've forgotten. We don't know. We no longer have the tools to have the discussions we need to have. Mm. And this is going to get tight. This knot is going to get more and more tangled. until an Alexander the Great comes along and slices slices it through. Uh, but who knows what that then means. So, I mean, do you think, Freddie, that the mood music is going to change? I mean, on the one hand, people are actually standing up in Parliament and saying oh. what some of what needs to be said. But on the other hand, the people who are lining up for government are clearly going to roll out this new APPG definition of Islamophobia. Mm. Um, you know, with very high probability. So you've got two things going on well, at once. Where, where does this go? I mean, I think
2: Ben has, in a way, you know, Ben's previous comment sort of answers that. And the The media framing, I think, in a way, tells us a lot about, The future direction of travel it's it's already being sort of airbrushed out of existence that this was in fact a problem i mean i read an article in the guardian yesterday which was sort of you know saying actually actually it was just a labor it was just labor political bias and naughty smp for laying a separate amendment and you know if they hadn't have done that there wouldn't have been a problem at all and so so, so it's it's not being addressed and I i think the problem is year after year that we haven't addressed it there's something else that's happened is that there are people who are addressing it, but they're extreme right wing, extreme sort of neo-Nazi yeah. fascists. So, so we, we, we've left that space to them. And the subtle, the subtle consequence of that is that now it becomes harder every year to, to, to reclaim that space because anybody that talks about Islamism um, and, and the kind of speech codes and blasphemy codes that come with it is now immediately tarred as an extreme right-wing neo-Nazi because that space has been left to them. So, so it almost becomes an unsayable thing for, you, you, you know, um, mainstream political discussion. Um, and, and and that's going to be the, that's the challenge. I, I I can't see that happening, but the challenge is to reclaim that space. But anytime anybody tries to do it, you know, the, the media swings into action and they're tarred as an extremist. So it's going to be really difficult. It's going to be really difficult.
1: And it's a kind of a kind of feedback loop, isn't it? I mean, I, I remember in the early days when I was doing my PhD. Um, let's say about four years ago now. Um, I had a lot of pushback to the idea that I was doing a PhD just on ex-Muslims and people saying, well, you you can't do that. You've got to look at people who leave all religions. You've got to treat all religions equally. So ex-Anglicans, ex-Muslims, ex-Sikhs. And it's got to be this great comparative study. Um, And and I was fortunately able to push back against that. And uh, my supervisor was very supportive. Um, But I recognized just from my own personal experience if that's of any interest to anybody i don't know um how difficult it is to um to talk about islamism from a liberal or mainstream conservative perspective um and not be tarred or tainted by by those kind of associations can i um before we move on can i just make one other point which is Um, something that's been reported in uh, the Evening Standard, and I've I've seen it, I think, in a couple of other places over the weekend as well. And this is this organisation called the Muslim Vote, um, which seems to be positioning itself potentially as a kind of Muslim political party um, to outflank Labour on the left, um, particularly, obviously, at the moment on um, Gaza, Palestine, and so on. Um, And it, it seems to me that if we were either in this election or in some future election years from now, to be in a position where Labour is having to fight this threat from the left, there's going to be this awful kind of ratcheting up when it comes to the offers that politicians are making to uh, clamp down on Islamophobia and the, the APPG definition of Islamophobia and so on. Um, will just be the starting point in a kind of arms race of uh, politicians on the left to show that they are the most concerned about Islamophobia, that they are the most supportive of Britain's Muslim community, etc. So that seems to be another threat, I think, on the uh, the near horizon that I've seen in the papers recently. Probably
2: one of the consequences of identity politics will be a resurgence of sex and cults. I mean, after all, the party political system was something that in a way swept away those kind of you know the sectarian and cultish type of um, organization that that, that that you know used to have much more prominence but i i can't it's interesting it's an interesting question as to whether the party political system can actually withstand decades of of, of hardcore identity politics um, that will be interesting to see how particularly particularly labor actually you've pushed identity politics which it really the, the tendency of identity politics would be away from sort of the broad church of a political party towards something much more narrow. But anyway, we'll see.
1: I think that's probably an opportunity to segue onto our next topic, um, which is uh, the police hope for our police. network, hope yeah. for our police. So this is uh, well, Tom. Do you want to introduce this? I think you put this on the running order. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, it's, so this is uh, good news. Uh, the um, you may, I mean, listeners may well be aware of a group called SCENE in the uh, in the Civil Service, uh, where SCENE uh, stands for uh, Sex, Equality, and Equity Network. So there is already a SCENE network in the Civil Service. There's also SCENE in the City, and uh, both those organizations do some great work in really uh, balancing the Uh, transgender ideology the gender ideology that's taken over many parts of the civil service and now many parts of the financial sector now there's going to be a scene network in the police and it's uh, been a long time coming Um, the service the police service has very much been accused of um, actions that embed gender ideology and we have spoken haven't we Ben, relentlessly repeatedly of Instances where this is this has exactly this has happened, and people are getting into trouble for not supporting somewhat extreme gender ideology, and saying, "Well, actually, I still believe that uh, men are men and, and women are women." Uh, and but there are a couple of very serious points here uh, around the motivation for the establishment of of police scene. One of which is the recording of crime data. Uh, so much now. Of The really important data I'm speaking as a data person is based on self-declared gender identity rather than biological sex And a couple of stats that I saw um, That I think you wrote up actually Freddie in for the website Mm. is that according to Research from sex matters of the 22 police forces that responded to uh, freedom of information requests on how suspect sex is recorded 18 that's 82 percent said they recorded a suspects gender identity while well, 16 73% said that they did so on the basis of self id so this is endemic and this means that you know members of the public after a crime trying to help the police are going to be looking for the wrong sex mm-hmm. or, or or just confused i mean it's so confusing uh, no one can keep up with this i you know we we live in we live in this world we're constantly trying to understand the latest um movements in the transgender movement and the new words and vocabulary and ways of thinking about things, I, I don't understand it. I can't keep, keep pace with it. But if the, the police are now changing our language and changing our statistics, this, is, this means resources are going to be allocated in very odd ways. This means that um, we're not going to be able to uh, understand our national statistics or take action uh it, it, according to our statistics so it really does matter but this is good news because it, it's um it's a new initiative uh that will, that will make a difference um and is supported by some fairly senior police officers as well you know it's not just a few people in the police force who are doing this there are some fairly senior police officers who are who are keen to get this new movement going but you wrote it up freddie so i don't know what, what whether you had anything else to add on that well, I
2: mean, I think one of the things that struck me—I um, think it was the Daily Mail that originally had the story—and I I did a little bit of digging about, about some of the some of the police's police recent decisions and and the things that they've been doing. Is but but one of the things that struck me from the Daily Mail piece was um, Charlotte Cadden. I've got it here. Charlotte Cadden, Detective Chief Inspector with Greater Manchester Police, who's part of the New Scene Network, said. Um, we feel that this network is long overdue and it is not just needed now. It's absolutely imperative that it's set up. And then she went on. This is the bit that struck me. We know personally of serving officers and staff who have been referred for disciplinary action for merely expressing a view that sex is real and that they don't subscribe to a belief in gender ideology. You know, I, I guess from my perspective as the comms officer for the FSU, I knew of course, of our cases of, of members of the public who've been arrested and taken down, uh, take, taken into custody for expressing gender critical beliefs, but um, not being on the case team. I, mean, I, I wasn't aware that actually even serving police, um, you know, members of the police was were, were, were facing disciplinary action for the same things. That, that's, that's shocking to me, um, because it, mm. it, if these issues that you talked about, Tom, you know, the gender self-ID issues, and um, you know how how are suspects in rape trials um, I, uh, being identified by biological sex, gender, and these are key issues for police officers. If anybody has a right to be expressing a view, serving police police officers do. So that was that was shocking to me that actually disciplinary action is being taken by by members of the police forces around England and Wales that that, that, that talk about this.
1: I mean, just to put my my cards complete on the table, I think it's it's great that there are scene networks. Um, popping up in uh, civil service and the police. There's one that's recently been launched as well in Parliament. Um, So I I think obviously there needs to be a corrective to the identity-based trans campaign staff networks that are operating within all sorts of organisations in Britain and and distorting the the actual core mission of those organisations. But I, I would also say that it must be, I think, a matter of regret that it's come to the point where staff need to organise themselves in networks um, Mm -hmm. around their shared belief in reality. Um, If we had a sort of Galilean staff association operating in the civil service or an association of people who believe in Newtonian physics, um, rather than the flat, I mean, it it just it's so palpably absurd that we've, we've got to this point. So I'm glad that there is a a reaction against this overreach by by trans campaigners who want to change everything and shut everyone up who complained about it. Um but I think there is some regret that that we are where we are as well.
0: But there were two you put some really couple of really interesting additional observations. You know, while we're talking about um legal news and police news it's not all i mean obviously the c network oh yes this is good news Yeah, but there's a couple of tidbits that you you came up with the first of all was that um well i'll I'll go for the one we talked about before the west yorkshire police they've now Hmm. apologized over the lesbian nana incident that we talked about Uh, must have been months ago now but it was the usual suspects west yorkshire police which seemed to pop up again and again and again and that poor autistic teenager was was dragged from under the stairs in her own home out um, because of this, this sort of alleged homophobic incident. But anyhow, that West Yorkshire police force has now sent an apology letter to the family and the uh, police officer involved has been asked to go on to sort of reflective training. Mm. To think about what happened and how why it happened so you know i'm no fan i'm no fan of reflective training i know what do you do sit in front of a mirror <laughs> but um you know at least at least that's a good outcome where the police force is is, is saying yeah we got that wrong and 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 the video I, I think the the article talks about the fact that um you know it wasn't just the comment that was being uh, taken around social media there was a, there was a context yeah, yeah. to it yeah, was. that didn't necessarily yes. get reported on yeah um so i mean it was, but that's a good good bit of news i mean again the you know, how how many months are we after the event you know the damage is done isn't it yeah, that's the problem
1: it's back in august i think
0: yeah yeah exactly exactly so you know the child the child is and and and, and the painful event that we saw on that video has happened and the damage has, ha- has, has been done. But a, a bit of good news there. It's
2: a disappointment. I mean, maybe maybe it's an operational issue that, that they would never, you know, release in public, but it, it would have been nice to have got confirmation about whether the incident took place inside the the, the child's home. Because I think, you know, th- th- there is an issue here about if it did, then there's a clear issue public order act and the dwelling defense that comes with the public order act and and, and police officers knowledge and understanding of free speech the, the, the law around free speech so that, that that's something unfortunately that wasn't really discussed in the report but I, I, for me it's a crucial detail if it, if it happened inside the home you know mm-hmm. what what, why, what happened why why, <laughs> why did why was there an arrest um so that yeah that was missed out of the yeah. report
0: that was a question i was going to ask you actually freddie uh, coming back to you, um, I'm sorry about that. I know you. you you're, you're a you're a humble man. Um, how do you keep up with just the torrent of free speech news? Ben and I speak every week, and we're picking and choosing. We're very selective on items that we want to talk about. And certainly, we don't cover the whole of the newsletter. The newsletter has many, many more items. You're also always sending into our social media group stories. You're, you're You're posting on X or Twitter. You're on LinkedIn. You're on Instagram. You're on top of stuff. And you're writing about it. You're analyzing it. You're in the critic. You're writing extensive pieces for our website. How on earth do you keep on top of that? Freddie, how, how do you how do you mm. filter all of that? Well, uh, <laughs> he never sleeps. That's it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, well, four hours of sleep is the answer to
2: that question. Yeah, four hours of sleep a day. But um, <laughs> I, I think it, I think it's um, I think when you when you're immersed in it, actually, some of it, so you can quickly make connections with other stories. Um, so for you know, for instance, the West Yorkshire Police story. You, you know, there's there's other stories I've written about. Article ten of the ECHR, um, West Yorkshire Police's past history of free speech misdemeanors. So there's lots of with with any story. There's always a backstory, and I think I, I, I now, uh, two years into this job, I now have a, 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 a near encyclopedic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, memory of all the things that we've written about in the past. So, so it's it's a story. It can be one story, but then you can quickly elaborate on it and finesse it and, and add a bit of context as well, based on the the things that you've written in the past. Um, but having said that, there is kind of you know there are some issues that at the FSU we just simply don't we, we don't we don't touch. Not because we're we're afraid to touch them, but just because there is this kind of inter interlinked web of stories. I think now in topics that we that we that we focus on in our casework and then that's reflected in the things that we we talk about publicly as well so it's not everything
1: there, there was one other thing i was going to mention which um we on our lovely shiny uh, new website uh, we do have uh, a latest news section which freddy populates with i mean reams and reams of stuff so if you want to stay informed about what's going on um there's the newsletters there's the podcast there's our website um, Uh, One of the um, items at the end of last week was, of course, the good news that uh, Colonel Bob Stewart has had his Mm. uh, conviction for racially aggravated uh, public order offence quashed. Um, I mean, this I I keep I think I've used the word nonsense about 20 times in this episode. This really was a nonsense, wasn't it? Um, So that's. Superb. That's another bit of happy yeah. news to share. The trouble we have, Freddie, is there's so there's so much going on and so much of it tends to be bad news that um we, we fear that that Tom and I end up uh being <laughs> sounding a bit curmudgeonly. Yeah. Uh, this is why we brought you on. Um but this is good well, I've sometimes I suddenly like like those two in
0: the box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you remember the Muppet Show, Ben? Do yes, you remember the Muppet Show I when the, the two Muppets are there in the box I going, This is rubbish? Yeah, <laughs> this, well, this, rubbish. This, is, this is how we're oh. going
1: to end up, Tom. We're coming up to. We are,
0: I think mean, I'm already there. <laughs>
1: yeah. You still, there's still hope for you, Ben. There's still hope. Have <laughs> we been doing the podcast for a year now? Are we We're coming up to the anniversary? Is that right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, yeah.
1: There is a danger that we turn into uh, caricatures of ourselves, but
0: there we are. Freddie, um, last question. Mm. Uh, to you i mean uh, we, we we're we kind of running out of time we i did have a we did have potentially another segment but we've had we've, we've covered a lot today i think um as you sort of immerse yourself like a like a fish in this world um what <laughs> what i mean by that is these are the waters <laughs> we're swimming in so yeah. sometimes yeah no, that's wasn't quite i wasn't saying you you are a fish um and you know you've got all of this news coming at you, and you're you're, you're trying to see positive uh, in light in all of this. You know how do you see this free speech battle playing out in the next? Okay, we've got an election coming up. Mm. Let's let's allow for that, and let's allow for the fact that it might turn things. You know, on on put things on steroids. Some of the some of the trends we've seen. Um, but I mean, do you hold out hope for? 5 10 15 years for your kids um, or 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 are you more pessimistic how how do you how do you, how are you looking into the future at the moment well
2: I'll, I, yes i do see hope but i i will start with the sort of threats i think i mean I, I, whether whether we get a new a labor government later this year or whatever happens I, I think the threat actually now comes from transnational networks transnational cooperation between governments i i I don't think when it comes to issues of you know what what is called hate speech and mis and disinformation that that seems to have been the, the the control over that seems to have been sucked out of the container of a nation state in any case and is now is now something that's decided in international cooperation and networks and you know you know bodies that 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 come up with rules and come up with what what's appropriate and what we sh- what people should be doing and what they shouldn't and then that's fed down to the nation state um so so i don't i, I mean mm-hmm. I, I can only see that continuing i mean it's it's tied into sort of bureaucratic processes in uh, and and, and uh, which which implement these international kind of agreements but i do think there is hope in the sense that Any system that tries to or has aspirations to become totalizing is in in the end cannot keep up with those aspirations. It it simply people 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 fight back, people object, people criticise, and I think we in a way we've seen we're just getting into the first phases of that with the whole net zero. uh, it's not free speech, but mm. but the whole net zero kind of totalitarian aspect of your life will be controlled in these these ways. This is what you will do. This is what you will have. And people aren't wearing it. People aren't buying it. And I mean, by the way, whatever you think about climate change and the environment, I, that's not the same as talking about net zero. <laughs> net zero are the policies. Net zeros are the is is the kind of surveillance aspect of that. People, people won't wear it. Yeah. Um, and there's been a pushback against that. Um, so, so uh, in a way, I think the more totalistic the ambition of people that want to control speech becomes, the more the, the easier it will be for people to resist and protest. Paradoxically, and actually fight back because more people will see it. And I, 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 I genuinely don't think there's many people that will wear what's coming down the line. They will, they just simply won't accept it. So, so there is hope, but I think unfortunately things probably will have to get. A little bit worse before there is a a sort of
0: general cross political spectrum fight back about this. That's a whole episode, Freddie, I think. Your your that area of supranational organizations. Ben, I think we need to come back to that. We need to bring Freddie back on, talk about that, because it seems to be an area you're 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 writing a lot about and in in researching. And it links in with other things. We've talked about B Corps before. Yeah. We've talked about some of the training that's coming in that is, again, is cross-border. Uh, and, the you know, we talked earlier about the EU. You're absolutely right. And uh, we can talk about are we all conspiracy theorists now and th- things like that? You know, it re- does raise some fairly fundamental questions. Yeah. So I think I think that's really interesting, and certainly I think we could we could bring you back for a yeah. whole episode. Yes. on Yes, I, I strongly uh, agree.
1: This has just been an introduction to Freddie Attenborough. Freddie Attenborough will be returned. Yeah, <laughs> this has been very very interesting and uh, so much as Tom says to uh, to return to, um, yeah. Gosh, well, I hope listeners have enjoyed that. Does anyone want to add anything? I think that's probably all, all I want to no, say. No,
0: i not. I think we've covered today's episode very well. Thank you, Freddie. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, thanks both. Yeah. All, all right. right. Bye bye.